The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Forum. My name's Craig, if I haven't met you before. Pleased that you're here with us today on this beautiful day. This is the third talk in a series that we're doing called The Australian Dream. We're looking at topics, what are we living for and uh, are those things delivering for us? Today's talk is on lifestyle. I come from the land of plenty. We're going to be looking at what are the upsides and the downsides of living in a country which is so wealthy and, and has so much. Our speaker is Al Stewart. Al will speak for 20, around 20 minutes and then it'll be a chance for you to make comments about the talk, to ask questions and there's, there's a number of ways that you can do that. You can do it via the slip of paper inside your program, write your question on that, hold up your hand at the appropriate time and someone will collect it and pass it on to me. You can hold up your hand and you can ask a question from the floor and I'll grab a roving mic. Or you can text in your questions or comments to the number that will appear on the overhead screen shortly. So please do send in those questions and comments. I'll hand over to Al. Thanks, Craig. Great to see you here on a beautiful day. Four or five years ago, uh, a good friend of mine bought, uh, who lives in London uh, came over here with his family. He came over to speak at some events, uh, bought his wife and uh, five kids... And the kids had never been to Australia before. Uh, their eldest daughter, lovely young teenage girl, uh, Charlotte, uh, they had arranged a few days' holiday up at the central coast, Copacabana, I think. And uh, after Charlotte had just been spoken to about uh, the sun here being strong enough to actually peel the skin off your body, and she kind of got the idea about sunburn, and she wanted to go into the surf, and, we, and she was told, no, she couldn't go in the surf because there were so many blue bottles that day, you could actually walk across the ocean on them, and they'd closed the beach. Then her brothers came out of the holiday house and told her that they'd just killed a big black spider in one of the bunks that they were supposed to be sleeping in. And she's a little kind of agitated, and she's absentmindedly picking some berries off a tree, and my wife Kathy told her, don't eat those, whatever you do, they're poisonous. And, and without a word of a lie, there's about six Aussies kind of in a circle and uh, she's there and she said, she screamed, she said, oh, is everything in this country trying to sting you, eat you or kill you? And the Aussie said, yeah, actually, it is. <laughs> and we laughed. There's something, why is it the fact that Australia is, has so many dangerous things and if you live here, you laugh about it? Bill Bryson wrote, uh, what a, wrote a great book. He's a, a travel writer. If you haven't ever read this book, it's a, it's a light, funny, insightful read, gently making fun of us. This is what he says about Australia and what a dangerous place it is. He says, Australia has more things that will kill you than anywhere else. Of the world's top ten poisonous snakes, all are Australian. Five of its creatures, the funnel-web spider, the box jellyfish, blue-ringed octopus, paralysis tick and stonefish are the most lethal of their type in the world. This is a country where even the fluffiest of caterpillars can lay you out with a toxic nip, where seashells will not just sting you but actually sometimes go for you. 
If you're not stung or pronged to death in some unexpected manner, you may be fatally chomped by sharks or crocodiles or carried helplessly out to sea by irresistible currents or left to stagger to an unhappy death in the baking outback. It's a tough place. Uh, Just as an aside, I just love the way... He was worried about snakes and he's asked a waitress uh, in a restaurant about what to do with snakes in the bush. She said this... But don't worry, she continued, most snakes don't want to hurt you. If you're out in the bush and a snake comes along, just stop dead and let it slide over your shoes. He says, this, I decided, was the, quote, least likely to be followed advice I had ever been given. Now, I want to say to you today, Australia is a dangerous place, but not in the way that Bill Bryson thinks it's dangerous. Uh, strangely, Australia is dangerous uh, in the same way as another land, a land of plenty, uh, was dangerous that the Bible talks about. Now, in your program today, if you want to open it up, is a part of the Bible from the Old Testament. Uh, what it is, it's uh, chapter 8 of the book of Deuteronomy. If you're not used to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is the, uh, the farewell address uh, uh, from the great prophet Moses. As Moses has led the nation of Israel in the desert for 40 years. Uh, he, he, well, God used him to bring them out of Egypt. You've got the 10 plagues and crossing the Red Sea. 40 years later, they're right on the edge of coming into the Promised Land. Uh, if you get a map in your head, they're just to the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River, about to cross the Jordan, come into the land that God had promised to Abraham centuries before. And Moses tells them that as this generation that's grown up in the desert, they've been there 40 years, that the promised land will be dangerous. Have a look at uh, verse 7 as he speaks to them. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. So a land of great natural resources, food will be plentiful, water will be uh, easy to get... Uh, verse 9, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, so it'll be easy to grow food. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. A land where it won't be hard to have uh, a mining boom with uh, iron ore or copper. So, doesn't sound that dangerous so far, does it? Verse 11, here's the danger. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Now, what would, what would make them forget God? They're Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. What, what would make it? Verse 12. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all, that you, all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do you see the the great irony? The very kindness of God to them as God gives them big houses, silver, gold, flocks and herds. The very kindness of God could make them focus on the wealth and forget God. Now, Australia's not the promised land, despite what some of us might think, okay? Australia's not the promised land, but maybe you can see the the parallel. And that is, we live in a land of plenty. Uh, The the title for today's talk came from the, uh, you know, the the song, uh, Down Under. 
we do come from a land of plenty. In fact, study after study shows we're the richest country or in the top two or three in the world. So last year, uh, October uh, 2013, Credit Suisse, the financial institution, uh, did a survey. In terms of median wealth, and I had to, I'll admit it, I had to check on Google what median meant precisely. That means that there's as many of the Australian population below a particular point as above, so 50-50, right in the middle. We are the wealthiest nation on earth. Uh, with median wealth being 219,000 US dollars. If you go to average wealth, wealth divided per person in assets, we are second behind Switzerland. It might not feel like we're really wealthy, and there's a whole lot in the media about money, but, but hey, we are. And quite possibly the richest country, not just at the moment, but in the history of the world, on average. How has that happened? It's worth asking the question, isn't it? It's only been 225 years of, uh, well, we used to say European settlement, but I'd now like to say European and Asian settlement. Uh, how has it come from? As a country, we've inherited not just magnificent natural resources, but a culture that allows us to create wealth. Um, let me recommend a book. If you're a regular here, if the person beside you rolls their eyes, it's because they're regular and they've heard me say this so many times, so forgive me. If you're new, this is really interesting, okay? Don't let that... Rodney Stark uh, is an American author. He's a uh, professor at Baylor University in Texas. This book is brilliant. Uh, the Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism and Western Success. What he says is it's not... Uh, it wasn't random. There's a reason why Western Europe saw the development of science, the Industrial Revolution, the rise of capitalism, freedom and democracy. And that is, he said, those things flowed out of a Christian worldview. The one on science, well, maybe that's another day or if you want to ask a question about it. Uh, the idea of capitalism, capitalism is only possible if those who make the laws are under the laws themselves and you have guaranteed property rights. It means people have to invest because they're sure of the future and we've inherited that. It, it's, it's actually the goodness of God that's made the growth in wealth that we have possible. It's that world view. But here's the irony. There's a kind of a catch-22 thing built into the prosperity that the Christian world view will bring. Uh, let me read a quote to you from John Wesley. If you haven't heard of John Wesley, he's a very famous Christian preacher and teacher. Uh, in the 18th century, he and his brother uh, brought a revival that transformed England and had an influence in North America as well. Listen to what he says about the kind of catch-22 thing that, that's a problem with the wealth Christianity brings. John Wesley says this, I fear wherever riches have increased... The essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. People get richer and richer, they forget about God. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any period of revival of religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality. In other words, if people begin to follow Jesus, well, they'll, generally they'll work honestly and work diligently and they'll save, and they'll care about education, etc., etc., and these things cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and the love of the world in all its branches. 
In other words, as people get richer and richer, they're much more likely to focus on the wealth itself and become proud and, and forget about God. And that's why Moses says, beware, back to Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people of Israel, as they're about to come into the promised land, there's a wrong response to all the good things God will give you. See verse 17, the wrong response? You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth. In other words, we've done it ourselves. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I'm successful. Now, if you're in this room, as I look around, you guys all look pretty successful, okay? I probably work in the city. You've done really well. You're successful. And I'd like to say you're successful because of the choices that you've made. Well done. Well done. And you've made so much better choices than other people in the world. You chose the country that you were born in very well. You chose the year of your birth carefully. Uh, so you, you chose your parents well. You chose your intelligence, your um, IQ, your emotional quotient really well. You chose the education that you could have as a child brilliantly. Uh, you chose all those job opportunities that were there, etc. And you get the idea, don't you? What am I saying? There are so many things that we don't control. And success is a factor of so many other things. There's so many other people who didn't have choices, who have been born in times and places where they've just been locked into poverty through no fault of their own. Here's another really interesting book. Malcolm Gladwell, who's got the world's best haircut, I reckon. Um, he's, uh, he's the author of The Tipping Point. I don't know if you've heard of that. That was a great book, but I think this is... I've read three or four of his. This is the best one. Um, outliers. It's the idea of he studied those who are incredibly successful, kind of world's best at certain things. So uh, in sport, in music, in business, in uh, accumulating wealth. Uh, he, he said there's certain factors like the number 10,000 kept coming up. 10,000 hours of practice. If you want to be the world's best computer programmer, the world's best violinist, whatever it was, 10,000 hours of practice to become world's best. Well, that was one thing. But the other thing that kept coming up is there's all sorts of factors that people can't control, almost like good luck, if you like, if that's the way you see the world, that they were born in the right time and place and that led on to success. He actually lists the 75 richest people in history. Now, you've got to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because you've got, you know, one of the pharaohs and Cleopatra listed and, and, and others. But 75 incredibly rich, the, the richest people that he could come up with. Uh, John D. Rockefeller heads the list with, in today's dollars, $318 billion. I think that's about five times Bill Gates, something like that. What's most surprising about this list, the 75 richest people in history... 20% of them, 14 or 20% of them, were born in one country and within nine years of each other. Now, anyone want to guess the country that they were born in? It's not too hard. The USA. And they were born in the 1830s. Uh, why? Because they were just the right age. Born in the 1830s, put 20, 30 years on that. They were just the right age to pick up when Wall Street took off, when uh, the oil industry, when um, uh, steel, or when the American economy skyrocketed. If you're born in the 1820s, 
you were too old to jump on the wave. If you were born in the 1840s, you were too young to jump on the wave. And it was just, they chose the country and the decade they were born in exactly right. And his point, it's not all about just hard work and you can't congratulate yourself on so much. Don't you think it's true as well that if um, success is all about me and what I've done, doesn't it so easily tend to actually look at other people with either pride if I've done better or envy and despair if they've done better? It's, it, it's hard to live with it. What's the right response? Well, verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors to this day. Now, God keeps his promises. God, it's God who has given them the wealth. The reason our nation is so wealthy, magnificent natural resources, a system of government, uh, economics that we inherited from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And as an individual, if you have gifts, intelligence, ability, entrepreneurial skill, it's, it's the gift of God. And you know the good thing about that? You don't have to kind of pretend the false modesty sort of thing. If someone says, hey, you're really good at that, you know, you've got to say, oh, well, Chuck's no, I'm not really. I... You don't have to do that. You can say, well, if I am, it's because God has made me that way. It's the gift of God. We still talk about gifts that God has given. And so to be thankful to God for the good things we've got. And you see verse 10, to actually thank God for it and enjoy it. And when you have eaten and are satisfied... He's not saying don't eat and don't be satisfied and don't enjoy it. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Uh, enjoy it and don't forget him. One last uh, lesson that they should have learned, that we should learn too, and then over to you for questions or comments. I don't know if you know the story, but God fed Israel in those 40 years with manna. Um, manna was a kind of a wafer-like substance uh, that turned up that they hadn't seen before, it turned up each morning. Um, the Hebrew word manna is literally kind of what is it or what you call it or what's it, okay? And they said, what's this stuff, you know, and what's it? And that's what they ate every morning for 40 years, okay? So manna. Now, why did God do that? I guess God could have kind of had a whole lot of cattle wander into the uh, into the camp once a month and they, everyone does the butchery, you know, and they keep it, salt it. No, no, it was day by day by day. It was God's plan to humble them, to teach them that he is the one that provided for them, that he's the one that fed them. Have a look at verse 3. It's kind of the key to the whole question. Why did God do that? Verse 3, he humbled you, so Moses talks to Israel, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Now, why did he do that? To teach you that man, woman, that, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, so to teach them that there's more to life than just the material than just bread that you eat or wine that you drink or clothes that you wear, that you don't live just on... Life is not just an economic question. You know, to say that seems crazy and naive today, doesn't it? Because, of course, life is all about economics. That's the most important thing there is. 
I want to read you a quote that I found during the week. Uh, I'll take a bit of a risk because this quote is not easy to understand, but I think it's brilliant, and that's why I've put it on, on the program. So if you look in the bottom right-hand corner of your program, uh, there's a quote there from R.H. Tawney, who's a, an English um, historian. I'll read it slowly. If you don't get it, it's worth reading it carefully on the bus or on the train on your way home. It really is worth um, wrestling with. And you'll see how it's, it's Australia today. He might have written it 70 years ago, but it's Australia today. Here we go. I'll read it carefully. When the age of the Reformation begins, and the Reformation, uh, big kind of religious movement, mid-1500s it begins. When the age of the Reformation begins, economics is still a branch of ethics and ethics of theology. All human activities are treated as falling within a single scheme whose character is determined by the spiritual destiny of mankind. So what I'm saying is, the way we thought about life is, it's the spiritual thing that really mattered, where we stand with God, eternity, that's what really mattered, um, but that changed. But by the restoration, and he means reinstalling the monarchy, Charles II after Cromwell and... uh, all of that, about 1665. By the Restoration, 100 years later, the whole perspective, at least in England, had been revolutionised. Religion has been converted from the keystone which holds together the social edifice into one department within. And the idea of the rule of right is replaced by economic expediency as the arbiter of policy and the criterion of conduct. Life becomes an economic question rather than a spiritual or ethical question. What's right? Whatever will work best in terms of money. From a spiritual being who, in order to survive, must devote a reasonable attention to economic interest, man seems sometimes to become an economic animal who will be prudent, nevertheless, if he takes due precautions to assure his spiritual well-being. I'm sorry that's all gender-specific. It was written 70 or 80 years ago. You get the idea though, don't you? We've gone from spiritual beings who, yeah, we're well, sure we've got to do the economic thing, to now it's all about economics. Oh, and by the way, spirituality hangs on like, like a handbag if you've got time for it. And isn't that our country? Every election these days is about who will put the most money in the most pockets. It's, it's that simple. Um, and to be honest, the choice... It's the greed of capitalism or the envy of socialism. That's pretty much what we've got. And social problems are presented, sure, they're presented from a human point of view, yes, but you watch, there's always the bottom line how much money it costs. So on Tuesday, uh, there's a report put out by Beyond Blue and PwC on mental health in the workplace, uh, saying that one in five Australian workers experience mental health illnesses such as depression and anxiety in the workplace. One in five workers. Why should employers set out to help those people? Well, it costs $11 billion a year, and here's the real punchline, for every dollar an employer invests in mental health of employees, there'll be a $2.30 return. That's why we should do it. Maybe I thought, maybe we could just help them because they need help, but no, that's... uh, Anyway. See verse 3 again. He humbled you to teach you what? That we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
The way the Bible sees the world, God speaks and things happen. The way you relate to God is through his words. So the Bible shows us God creates, he speaks, the world comes into being. God sustains the world as he speaks. Uh, God shows us himself through his word. And God provides not just, not just physically but spiritually. It's through the word of God that you can know him. It's through the word of God that you can know forgiveness and purpose and hope. Hope even for eternity. And the reason this is so important, the reason that the promised land was so dangerous, if you look at the last two verses of Deuteronomy 8, what does God say? If they forgot him and walked away from him, he would destroy the nation and throw them out of the land. And Jesus has a a warning for us, uh, personally, nationally. See, Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And I wonder whether, as a nation, like I love this place, I'm on a third generation, fourth generation, but I wonder whether in all our wealth we're in danger of selling our soul as a nation. And if I could ask for you personally, you know you're more than just a, an economic being, don't you? You know life's more than just bread alone or food alone or the house. Or, there is more. And if that's all we live for, life is empty. Jesus says you've sold your soul and that's... Interesting words from Ravi Zacharias, who's a... a Christian teacher, he says this, the worst kind of meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain or poverty, but from being weary of pleasure amid plenty. I think there's many of us who are weary in the midst of plenty. What does God say? We actually live by his words and knowing him. Now, there may be questions or comments. Craig's the brains of the operation, but happy to take them in any way. Yep, thanks, Al. I'm up here. I thought uh, it might be good just to get the brain juices going. If perhaps we just have a, a quick chat to perhaps the person next to you at your table. What's your reaction to the talk today? Anything that particularly struck you that you found interesting? Do you agree that growing wealth for our country? is a spiritual danger for our country and maybe for you. I wonder if anyone has a, a question that you'd like to ask Al or a, a comment you'd like to make. Uh, you can do that by putting up your hand, by texting me a question, by writing it on that slip of paper. And I might ask uh, Mark if you wouldn't mind circulating, just looking out for written questions. Who'd like to kick us off? Um, thanks, Al. The budget is a big talking point, so... What should be the right attitude if our focus should be on the most important things of giving God thanks um, and not being so materialistic in terms of what our attitudes towards budgets and how money should be allocated in that sense? Uh, It's hard, isn't it? I've watched the whole... I've read carefully the whole thing. I can't work out... There are such different views of what is happening, it's hard to work out what's, what's really going on. I just can't help but think, we are the richest country on earth. 
I'm sorry, I don't want to be political and not, okay, I don't want to divide on that. But we're the richest country on earth, but it does seem to me like we're not actually prepared to uh, look after those who really need help. That's, that's it. And uh, um, you got high, high income earners and the rich, and by the way, I'd be up there now because Kathy got an inheritance, okay, I'll just declare it. High, high income and fly on me hurt books anyway. Um, uh, high income earners and the rich who um, maybe go on and you know, pull their weight, etc. But part of the reason the government's saying they've got to readjust everything is because you've got people at the other end of the scale who are trying who will rot the scale wherever they possibly can. So it's not that the rich are bad and the poor are good. Everyone's greedy. And I did talk about the greed of capitalism and the envy of socialism. Um, it's not that one system's good and one system's bad, it's just that everyone in it is greedy or envious. Now, when you talk to people at work, they probably don't need a sermon like that. But I, yeah, I, I don't have any particular wisdom on this particular budget other than it seems to me that we've, we've been harsh on people who can least afford it. That's my, now, um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay, I've got a text question. Uh, we agree that wealth is a danger to us spiritually, but what's the answer? How do we combat it? Do we give it all away? Okay, good. Very good question. There are, there are times when Jesus puts his finger on, on someone's life and tells them to give their wealth away, like in Luke chapter 18, uh, to the rich young world. Uh, that is specific. What Jesus says is, generally... Be generous. You can't serve God and money. You can only serve one master. It's either God or, or it's money. How can you tell? If you're able to be generous and give money away to people, money's not your master. If you can't be generous, I'd say money's got hold on The average Australian family gives less than a dollar a day in all forms of charitable giving the last time. Less than $350 a year. I, I, we, we're not generous as a nation. So, um, if you think about where you read the Bible, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 6, where he says, Tell those who are rich not to put their hope in this world, not to be arrogant, but to be generous and willing to share. Okay? Um, it's not that um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with being rich, it's just dangerous and seductive because you're so tempted to put your hope and trust, your security and your significance in your wealth. Because it looks like it really is. And there's nothing good about being poor. Um, it's just that in the Bible, those who are poor are more likely to look to God and trust Him better because they don't have the money to trust Him. <coughs> Anyone want to push back on that? It's generosity is what... Jesus calls us to about money. Okay. Any, any more questions out there? Written questions? Questions you want to ask from the floor? Very peripheral question. But King Solomon, where did he get? King Solomon? Yeah, in the top 75. Oh. <laughs> uh, do you know, I loaned, I loaned my book to somebody... 
and I got a photo, had to get them, to, someone to send me a photocopy of the thing, and I didn't get the full list. So I do not know if King Solomon is on the list. I'll, I'll have to check that, but that's a problem with loaning books to people. <laughs> Cleopatra is on it, but I don't know about King Solomon. Um, but he does reckon that... Um, Life is meaningless. Yep, the Rockefeller was uh, the richest man ever. Mm, I don't know, good question. By the way, I should say, on the political thing, and I've, I want to be absolutely impartial, it seems to me that uh, we've been hard on people who can least afford it, yes. At the same time, there's a lot of people in the last little while with their hand out for other people's money, and you've got to pay off the National MasterCard eventually. And so I, it's balanced. And I say, there's greed everywhere, and, and that's, that's the problem. So now I've managed to offend everybody. So I uh, just want to do it evenly. Okay, we might uh, leave it there. I've just got two things to let you know about that are uh, coming up. The first is that our next short course starts next Wednesday night. So if you're someone who'd like to check out the basics of the Christian faith to read the, about the life and the teaching of Jesus. We, we have a five-week course that we run on Wednesday nights, just across the way there. You'll see inside the program all the details and also a way of letting us know that you're interested or maybe someone that uh, you know or work with in the city might be interested. So consider that. And secondly, in a few weeks' time, some of us are going to the movies to see the movie The Son of God, followed by a panel discussion, and all the details are in there as well. Thanks for coming today. Next week we're looking at the final talk in the series, The Australian Dream, and it's on the good old Aussie castle, our, our houses. Hope to see you then. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.